Welcome to the Authority Podcast, Plumbing and Mechanical. When talking about the built environment, we would do well to remember, we shape our buildings and afterwards our buildings shape us. Therefore, on each episode, we'll discuss the latest trends from my Atmo in plumbing and mechanical safety, sustainability, and resiliency. Join me, your host, Christoph Lohr, and together we'll explore the ways we can make our buildings shape us for the better. Welcome to this week's episode of the Authority Podcast, Plumbing and Mechanical. This is part two of our two-part series, where we'll continue our conversation about plumbing resiliency and sustainability with Emma Hughes, Project Manager in the Lead Department at the U.S. Green Building Council, also known as USGBC, Mike Couday, Regulation and Sustainability Specialist for the Plastic Pipe and Fittings Association, also known as PPFA, Susan Kapitanovich-Marr, Principal, Sustainability Specialist at Morrison Hirschfield, and Darren Klein, Director of Environmental Technologies for VAPCO. I'm Christoph Lohr, your host, and I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation. If you missed part one, I suggest you go back and listen to that episode before continuing here. Now, let's jump right into part two of my conversation with Emma, Mike, Susan, and Darren. In our previous episode, Mike, you touched on the complexity of water, so maybe you can expand on that a bit. You know, how is water quality, you know, pipe size and, and plumbing design all linked? And maybe a question to everybody after Mike answers that is, you know, what and why do stakeholders need to understand about it? All right, uh, so I'll, I'll give you a brief history of plumbing. How's that? <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds okay. good. So your your first real control, your plumbing codes came out. Uh, it was the Hoover Code, and that was in the in 1928. Before that, believe it or not, IATMO came out around 1926. So this goes uh, way back. But the first real sizing studies for domestic type of plumbing was done by NIST by someone named Dr. Roy Hunter in the 1940s. And he did a, a clever statistical analysis to determine what size of piping would service the building at the 99% use rate. In other words, statistically, 99% of the time the pipes would be properly sized. And in the 1940s, you started seeing the new types of buildings, the skyscrapers and the office towers. So this was a, a good development. In our own lifetimes, or at least in mine, we've had things like the Safe Drinking Water Act in, in 74 the Energy Security Act in the 80s, the Energy Act in 1992. And through all these things, the usage of water in our buildings has dropped about by about 20%, a lot of that due to fixture flow rate restrictions. In the last 15 years or so, green building has become more popular, thanks to a, the efforts of a lot of people on this uh, podcast. And, and they're asking for another 20% reduction, and sometimes even more than that. So this is a further reduction in use. And the other thing that they're doing is reimagining some of our old technologies, cisterns and rainwater collection to replace some of the potable water. So certainly the use of the potable water within the buildings and green buildings has dropped as well. More recently in 2020, we had the COVID lockdowns, which was a great worldwide experiment in building occupancy. So certainly in some of these larger office spaces and industries that are laid idle for a long time, the water age has gotten you know, excessively old. Water generally is going to be good for several days within a building. It, it kind of depends on the water quality and treatment methods. But some of these buildings have been shut for months. So, so what's next there is IATMO and others have issued flushing and restart guidance. And, you know, it's not just the potable side of the lines. It's also are your traps full? Are you getting sewer gases back in the building? There's a lot of things to be concerned about if you're a building operator after these these COVID uh, lockdowns. So water age is is the primary issue. It's the decay 
of the residual disinfectants. And, and that's probably the biggest concern, although like we keep saying, there's a lot of unintended consequences. You got to look out for everything. Great points, Mike. Emma, when we were preparing for this, I think you had mentioned actually a few observations that you and the Screen Building Council had from some of the issues that COVID caused from a water quality standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate that brief informative history. We are seeing the impacts of these you know, decades of decisions playing out now and really punctuated by the recent COVID-19 pandemic. I think psychologically, there's that pandemic underscored that we are more vulnerable and our supply chains, our communities are much more interconnected and interdependent than maybe we realize on a, on a day-to-day basis when things are going okay. We've seen a continued acceleration despite the pandemic and, and focus from corporations, financial institutions, cities, governments on climate commitments and in the case of you know corporations ESG reporting, none of that has slowed down and, and related to water, water quality and, and building efficiency, I think people being home, staying in their, their same building for 24 hours a day and throughout the week working at, in their in their residential spaces has really highlighted again the need for high quality water systems and then also elevated concerns about people returning to these buildings that these commercial buildings that have been shuttered or idled as a, as a response to the pandemic. USGBC has compiled a website with resources, best practices for building re-entry. And among those is the Building Water Systems Recommissioning Pilot Credit, which Darren mentioned earlier. And that is really all about providing best practices for ensuring that we're minimizing as much as possible the risk of occupant exposure to degraded water quality. So in today's world, I I think more than ever, there's this consciousness, there's this awareness that human health, the economy, the built environment, and the natural environment are all critical pieces, and we need to address these holistically to ensure a more sustainable, inclusive future for everybody. So yeah, there's a lot there. (laughs) I sort of teed up Darren for the Building Water System Recommissioning Pilot Credit. Just wanted to layer that in in response to Mike's history. I do want to talk about that water quality recommissioning credit, but one thought that just came to mind, you know, is, you know, we have this complexity and we have these challenges when it comes to the the technical nature of water that, you know, we're trying to overcome maybe some stigma that was out there. You know, I guess maybe let me ask Susan this, what's the way that we help policymakers and jurisdictions, but, but especially policymakers, understand that water and that these challenges are more complex and that there's some additional challenges than, than just kind of waving a wand to fixing it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to take this. I would, my, my answer would be, first off, that there isn't sort of a, a fit for all kind of solution. I would have to say that in my opinion, I think it's it's more of that kind of like risk analysis perspective, you know, like looking at what are the issues in your region. So regional perspectives, I can't help but think of adding to what Emma said about water stewardship, looking at the environmental impacts of water to human health as well as the environment, but then also social issues, equity comes into this you know, the mm. equity and injustice that comes from like weather-related events as a result of climate change, what adaptive measures do we put in place to safeguard, you know, healthy water that is 
good for the, the ecosystem as well as human ingestion at the, all the places that matter. So I guess that doesn't quite answer your question, but I would have to say we'd have to look at it holistically again. I think there's a lot of good work out there that's done by IAPMO, other organizations. And if you go to pretty much any, and I have to say I'm biased here and I look at sort of municipal guidelines in Canada, (laughs) there are usually like, there's a water page and the water page has, you know, a little thing about efficiency, about reservoir, about downstream effects, about this and that. There are a lot of best practices that I think people are looking to implement. And I think the biggest barrier, honestly, is, you know, having these programs in place at a high enough policy level so that it actually becomes effective and LEAD and other programs actually push this mandate and put in a a different lens on everything we do. Like, you know, the the copper leaching has an impact on water efficiency when it comes to cooling tower cycles. Like those kinds of relationships aren't obvious. And I think that the work that we do here as a group and in other groups actually brings those issues to the forefront and can actually help inform policies that can be implemented to implement better change. There's a lot of really great, great, great points you made in there. And I guess if if I understand correctly, it sounds like a big part of the answer to overcoming that is kind of this combination of education, advocacy, and expertise. And that kind of nexus point in, in helping policymakers become aware of the issues and then helping them understand it. And really, it, it takes those specialists, it takes those people that care about it, like I imagine all the folks on this podcast here today care about it. And it kind of takes us working together to kind of keep elevating this issue so that way it, it's in front of the policymakers for them to understand that they need to do something about it. Yeah, and I also find that it's like motivation is super important here. Like what's the motivation for a lot of these policies? You know, I did mention, like again, back to Vancouver, like they they have an issue. They have a supply issue of water. You know, their water comes from uh, melting ice caps as we know what happens with climate change and that. They also have a growing population. So like there's really a push to implement this and they have the political structure set up to implement things at a rapid pace. And that political incentive or like Emma mentioned, ESG is becoming front and center with different financial institutions pushing for investments and assurance on, you know, protecting the environment or uh, at least safeguarding their investments from that perspective. And that could be another driver for a lot of policies or, or even programs that are put in place. I definitely agree. I think that's a great way to go. You know, you had mentioned what Emma was saying. You know, the the other thing, Emma, that you had mentioned was, you know, that LEAD is involved in trying to help create those conditions. You know, IATMO is as uh, as well through We Stand. And and I think there's a lot of opportunities there to kind of help spur on that motivation. But Emma, you had brought up this point, and I really have been chomping at the bit here to to talk about it. And I think you had mentioned that Darren might be the, the best person to talk about it, which is the new water quality recommissioning credit. So Darren, what are some of the specifics of that credit? And what are maybe to the general group, what are some of the policy implications for that as well. Absolutely. Thank you. And Emma, thanks for teeing it up for me. You know, this pallet credit is unique. It addresses the quality of the community water system as well as the building water system. So it's it's more than just a siloed approach where, you know, we're just focusing on the building water and you know, maybe low flow fixtures and stagnant legs in the building. So it looks outside the building. And that's, you know, what I like about this credit. And that's something that You know, with this credit design, it has policy implications where, you know, you have to make sure that that you have quality water coming in into the building. 
everyone in the supply chain kind of has a part in making sure that quality water is provided to the building occupants. And, um, you know, from the source water and treatment plant to distribution piping and, and building water systems. So that may mean the EPA changes, you know, what they're measuring and what they're looking at. And I know uh, it's up for review right now. So they, they may be testing for Legionella now where they hadn't in the past. So I think this pilot credit will help generate a lot of those questions and and get some good answers so you can have quality water in your building. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, Darren, because, you know, I think, and Emma, thanks for mentioning it in the first place, too, because to me, you know, it's funny, you know, my background, I'm a lead A PBD plus C, and I've been so for 10 years, and I, I felt like it's always been an important credential that I've maintained and, and done the continuing education credits for. And it was interesting with COVID because having focused so much of my time in the water industry and the plumbing industry, you know, I saw that IATMO and AWWA, that they uh, work together to come up with this uh, responding to stagnant water in vacant buildings document on, I think AWWA was the was the main driver for that one. And then now they've turned around and, and they're working together with IATMO as the main driver on the, the manual of best practices for the safe closure and reopening of buildings. That document should be out. And both of those deal with a lot of the flushing guidance out there. And there's been a number of industry organizations that have come out with flushing guidance. And so when I've, you know, I've seen all this and then I saw USGBC came out with that, with this particular pilot credit and, and I got really excited because I think it's, it's a really great sign that as an industry, we're starting to work, we're working together to come up with solutions and we're at least identifying the same solutions. But I think there's opportunities for us to, to kind of work closer together. Uh, and I guess, let me, let me bounce this first off of Mike. And then if others want to chime in. You know, how do we do a better job of aligning as various organizations and associations? How do we align to do a better job working together uh, and pooling our resources maybe more more effectively? I'm a, I'm a codes and standards guy. So I do like the consensus process uh, that those things involve. There's a definite procedure and process to writing the standards and codes. They involve everyone, public comments or encouraged it's just the best methodology to get everyone's input because there's no white knights on this issue. It's going to take everybody. Now that makes sense, Mike. And are you talking like an ANSI consensus process? Yes. If any process should be developed in a rigorous manner so that everyone uh, has an input, no one gets ignored and that concerns are addressed, preferably by some committee made up of all of the interest groups. And we need that. Because, you know, as we keep saying, there's a lot of unintended consequences here if someone's pet project gets fixed, but then it, it involves somebody else having an issue that they may not have seen coming. The model codes, uh, they get adopted everywhere, right? So if you thought Flint was bad, uh, that was just the <laughs> so yeah. what happens if something bad gets into the code or into these standards. That's why it's really important uh, to have a rigorous development. Emma, Susan, I mean, how do you guys think we do a better job having various industry organizations and associations and companies and corporations and, and whatnot work together to try to come up with solutions here. I have one, I think, exciting example to share and also interested in, in Susan's perspective. About 18 months, maybe two years ago, the California Urban Water Agencies reached out to USGBC to initiate a discussion around decentralized water resources. So basically ensuring that developers of, of buildings or, or communities are aligning with the regional or local water management objectives, if that makes sense. So specifically, mm -hmm. the California Urban Water Agencies represents a group of 
water utility service providers located throughout the, the state of California, and they were recognizing opportunities for LEAD to better recognize the leadership displayed in that state in terms of decentralized systems that might serve a community or a block of buildings that aren't really well recognized in the LEAD rating systems. And when I say decentralized systems, I basically mean either stormwater management or you know, gray water capture, mm. treatment, and reuse systems. So over the course of that discussion, they sort of handed over the collaboration lead to the National Water Reuse Association. And we had a subgroup of the lead water efficiency tag or technical advisory group collaborating really closely with what became known as the National Utility Advisory Group. So this Water Reassociation Convene Group represented utilities located across really diverse climate zones. So we had California, we had New York, we had Virginia, also had Illinois, Nevada. And through engaging with that stakeholder group, our you know largely buildings-focused group of volunteers serving on the lead water tag was able to develop and define a process. It's called the Integrated Project Water Reuse Strategy. And it Mm -hmm. basically, again, recognizes that solutions for effective water management look different in different regions. And the absolute best way to have that holistic understanding is is to reach out and to ask and to start those conversations so that the buildings industry is aligned with and working toward the same goals as maybe the local or regional water authorities where a given project is located. And that draft, I'm really excited, was just approved by the lead steering committee. It will be published mm. in the next month or two, but it's a process-oriented framework that focuses on what effective water management looks like in the regions where it's being implemented. So it's intentionally flexible and hopefully starts to provide best practices for for enhanced collaboration between buildings and water and wastewater management authorities. So back to your initial question of how do we do a better job working together? I think, yeah, basically you have to ask, start the conversation, and it can always lead to, to positive unforeseen consequences as well as those negative unforeseen consequences that we addressed <laughs> in the, earlier in the podcast. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I, I I think that's always one of those challenges for for engineers. Uh, you know, the stereotypes that they can be uh, introverted, um, but communicating more. You know, it's yeah. that whole whole thing about communication is key. But I, I think it, I think you're right. You know, I think that having conversations like there or like on a podcast or other places to kind of open up that passing of information back and forth. That's the the first kind of I think hurdle. I think you're spot on, Emma, and, and overcoming maybe that uh, systemic friction that's out there. Susan, anything you wanted to add or? Well, that was a great example. And just to add to that, actually to that specific example, um, working on that pilot credit or the work with the pilot credit actually helped me to or encouraged me to reach out to the County Green Building Council and municipal, actually my own local municipal um, utilities and kind of start asking the question. So from the perspective of you know, talking to my municipality uh, utility, they were sort of confused. And as I explained it, they caught on and understood what I was asking and then quickly said, oh, yeah, we don't we don't do that. But then in, in talking, it sort of introduced the idea and then talking to um, 
our Canada Green Building Council representative about this pilot credit, just high level. She actually pointed out that there was a city that's already doing it and uh, pointed me to the lead here. They're basically using centralized wastewater treatment, but then using the water for irrigation. It's not 100% potable. And I, I thought, oh my gosh, do they know about this upcoming pilot credit? And I just thought this is this is wonderful. You know, it's connecting what LEED's proposing as a best practice and rewarding it, you know, with LEED credit. But also it's it's a way to introduce these unique uh, or not so common issues to the rest of the country and, and internationally where it's not, it's not mandated or it's not quite yet available. So I think that's kind of how we do it. Uh, networking, as you said, and just introducing these concepts, I think, is is a, is a great way forward. I love it. I think before we wrap up here, you know, obviously we've covered a lot of ground during the course of our almost hour conversation here. Let me go down the line as far as how I introduced you all and ask, you know, maybe top lesson, uh, if you can't get it down to one lesson, maybe top two lessons that our listeners should take away from our conversation today. And I guess starting with the order of introductions, Emma, uh, what's maybe the top lesson that our listeners should take away from the conversation today? Ooh, top lesson. I think there's so much that we've covered. In a nutshell, I, I will say just relentless focus on water stewardship and all that that entails in terms of water, not just efficiency, but quality, resilience, social equity, improved outcomes. And in order to get at that water stewardship, I think what we've all been saying over the, over the course of this discussion is the need for better integration and coordination among all of the stakeholders involved. I don't think we've set us up for success in that perspective, just thinking in the United States, water is managed in such a fragmented way. We regulate it at the state, at the regional level. There are thousands of agencies involved from the Department of Health to you know, stormwater management, drinking water, potable utility providers. So there's there's so much here and to realize a really sustainable future for everyone, that integration, we have to break down those silos and do a better job working together. I like it. Mike, what about you? I think the key points are a holistic study of water, the stewardship of water that we mentioned already, uh, and consensus development of the codes and standards that can be used to safeguard the public health and yet conserve water. And as a as a member of the ASHRAE 514P committee, I'll make a slight pitch. There is a draft right now open for public comment until May 10th. And 514 sort of takes over from where uh, 188 on Legionella first started. So it it contains uh, control on multiple pathogens, thermal issues like that thermal burning we were talking about before, and things like corrosion byproducts. So that is available. You can find that on the ASHRAE website. I love it. I love it. Uh, Susan, what about you? What's top one or two lessons? Oh, man. Well, I think it's hard to follow the first two people because they took all my ideas. But I'm going to use a different word. I'm going to say the responsible use of water, tying in the E, the S, and the Mm. G of the ESG conversation, and then tying people together. I mean, this podcast, if you had asked me, what am I doing on a sort of plumbing designer-focused 
podcast, I would not have imagined myself here. But I, you know, the ability to speak to your listeners and to talk to the people on uh, the technical advisory group really is that opportunity to provide that perspective that's you know often missed if you look to micro at a, at a topic, um, not look at the bigger picture, and then we don't look at the entire picture. So yeah, the networking and, and considering all the issues related to water stewardship and uh, holistic thinking. I love it. All right. And last but not least, Darren, what other one or two lessons would you want to add? Sure. I got some uh, tough acts to follow, but I would say first, uh, know the water quality coming into your building and setting up a communication channel with your municipal water supplier so that in the event you have upset conditions or you have other issues you notice in your water quality in the building, that you know who to contact and, and making sure that you know, your occupants are safe. And, you know, with the Green Building Council, you know, healthy people, healthy places equals healthy economy. That's, I think that's key, having healthy water in the building. Definitely, definitely. Well, we'll go back in reverse order. Let me ask the question before we sign off here. How can our listeners get in touch with either you specifically or your organization? I guess I'll go right back up the line. Darren, uh, why don't you go ahead and first? Sure. Our listeners can reach me at uh, dklein at evapco.com. Phone number is 410-756-2600. So if you want to call our headquarters, uh, they can reach me. Awesome. Susan, what about you? Um, so I'll save you the hardship of spelling out my last name. Um, <laughs> so if you just cut and paste my name from this podcast description and put it into LinkedIn, uh, you'll find me and then just shoot me a message. I love it. Mike, your turn. Uh, you can certainly find me on LinkedIn, uh, Mike Cudahy, but I would encourage listeners to come visit our organization, PPFA, and that's ppfahome.org. Thanks, Mike. And then Emma, uh, do you want to round us out here? Yes, happy to. My email address is ehughes at usgbc.org. You can easily also find me on LinkedIn, Emma Hughes. I'm actually located in Florida. Well, and if any of our listeners want to get in touch with me, as as I've stated on other podcast episodes, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Lore Thoughts, or you can find me on LinkedIn, Christoph Lore PE. Otherwise, you can also email the podcast at theauthoritypodcast at iatmo.org. On behalf of the Authority Podcast Plumbing Mechanical, I just want to say thanks to Emma, Susan, Mike, and Darren. Really appreciate your time today. I learned a lot. I imagine our listeners learned a lot. And thanks again for taking time out of your busy schedules to provide some insights and expertise that I think has made an impact. So thanks again. Thank you. Thanks, Great Chris. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the Authority Podcast, Plumbing and Mechanical. Love this episode of the podcast? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Please follow us on Twitter at AuthorityPM, on Instagram at The Authority Podcast, or email us at iatmo at iatmo.org. Join us next time for another episode of The Authority Podcast, Plumbing and Mechanical. In the meantime, let's work together to make our buildings more resilient and shape us for the better. <laughs>